We are now wrapping up a five-week sermon series on Ephesians chapter 2, and we've been uh, reflecting upon the gospel from a few different angles. We've been trying to deepen our understanding of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. And so we've reflected on how the gospel is good news about what we're saved from and good news of how we're saved by grace and how we're saved into a relationship with God. And last week, Preston took us into another angle of the gospel that we're saved for God's purpose. We're saved for a purpose of walking in good works that God has prepared for us. And so our goal in this series isn't just to increase your knowledge and understanding of the gospel, even though I hope that's happened. Our hope and our prayer is that your delight and your joy in the gospel will increase and that that would actually change the way you live your life. Because the gospel is not just a set of ideas that we store away on a shelf. It is a reality that changes everything and we're called to live in light of it, to live in these good works that God has prepared for us. And it's as if Paul knows that we're tempted to keep that all in the abstract, which is why after verses 1 through 10, he immediately goes into a very concrete and practical example of how we can live out the gospel in good works in verses 11 through 22. And that's where we'll focus this morning. And so here's the idea I want to explore. The gospel is good news about how God is making a new humanity. The gospel is good news about how God is making a new humanity. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be in verse 11 through 22. If you don't own a Bible, take one of ours home with you. Everything will also be on the screen behind me. Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. I want us to begin by reflecting upon division. It's our inclination to divide up the world into us versus them. You can look at the person who's a loud eater or the person who doesn't compost and recycle properly or the person who actually likes Starbucks or the person who voted for the opposite political party than you and think deep down, even not intentionally, but the thought bubbles up, well, at least I'm not like them. And we experience this division in our hearts and we experience it externally in friendship sometimes, even in our families, in our social circles, in our workplaces. There's us and there's them. There's the people who are like us and the people who are not like us. And social psychologists say this is fundamental to how humans construct their identity. We make distinctions between people. We, make, we draw lines between nations. We mark up and divide the world because it helps us understand what makes us, us. And to know who we are, we have to know who we're not. But if we're not careful, this can descend into a belief and even an unconscious belief that if you're not with us, you're against us. And the month of January is a painful reminder of how human division can result in atrocity and pain. On January 21st in the United States, it's Martin Luther King Jr. Day, and and the the whole nation remembers everything that the civil rights movement accomplished, but also remembers and grieves and laments all the work that is still yet to be done before King's vision really comes to fruition in their country. Internationally, on January 27th, is Holocaust Remembrance Day. We don't want to forget 
what took place in Nazi Germany and their program of ethnic cleansing against Jews and other minorities. But I would be remiss not to bring these sort of issues closer to home. The long and sordid history of how indigenous people have been treated and abused in Canada. The Chinese head tax. The Japanese internment during the Second World War. All of these things took place here in British Columbia, sometimes even in Vancouver. And if we're honest about the present day, we still hear racism lightly peppered throughout speech all the time, especially when it comes to ethnicity and land. Ranging from buying homes, Surrey, or Richmond. And if you know what I'm talking about just because I've named a place that shows just how pervasive racist attitudes are in our day-to-day -day lives, even the ways people talk about unceded territories. And so if we really take the time to listen to voices that are speaking up and crying out about what their everyday experience is like in a city where they experience systematic racism that impacts the way they walk down a street and how they apply for a job, we know we have our own problems here. And so we might look back on history and think, yeah, we've come a long way. That doesn't mean we've come all the way. You see, when we look at humanity, there is division all throughout humanity, locally and globally, throughout history, and even in the present day. And it's real and it's costly. And so St. Paul, as he continues to illuminate the gospel for the church in Ephesus and for us, he moves on to this issue of division. And yes, he doesn't directly address ethnic cleansing or war, but he gets to the heart of the matter. Can humanity in all our differences unite rather than divide? Can our differences actually bring us together rather than drive us apart? For an ancient Israelite like Paul, there were two categories of people. There were the Jews, and then in another circle that will eventually come up on the screen, everybody else. Everybody else was categorized as Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles. That's how he saw the world, and that's how Jews saw the world. And Jews knew that God had called their nation Israel into existence. God had spoken to them and said distinctly to them, I will be your God, you will be my people. And they founded their nation upon this truth and it was based on their scriptures. It was based upon the revelation of God. God established a unique and committed relationship with his people Israel, and he entered into a covenant with them to demonstrate this. So one of the ways you knew you were a part of God's people was the mark of circumcision, the mark of the covenant. And so when Paul all of a sudden out of the blue starts talking about circumcision and uncircumcision, it's not this weird, uncomfortable tangent. It is a way of talking about how humanity has divided itself up. It's another way of pointing out there's Jews and there's Gentiles. There's the circumcised and the uncircumcised. There's the people who have God's promises and the people who are without hope in the world. But over time and throughout history, animosity started to grow between Jews and Gentiles, between Jews and the nations around them. And some of it's understandable when you look at the history of, of war and the way that the Jewish nation was oppressed from time and time again. But over time, this hostility grew. You can look at the Talmud, which is an ancient Jewish uh, collection of writings, and it says this. The Jews are called human beings, but the Gentiles are not humans. They are beasts. You see, over time... Not only was Israel in and everybody else was out, but Israel was also 
better and more human than everybody else. Now, on some level, Paul acknowledges and affirms the distinctions and differences between Jews and Gentiles. As Paul writes to these Jewish Christians, he says, remember what your life was like prior to encountering Christ. You were alienated. You were separated. You were apart from God's people. So you might have had your own religion. You might have had your own gods, but it was all false worship. You were cut off from the one true God. This is Paul's conviction. He affirms this distinction that Israel as a nation had a special task and calling from God. And if you are far from them, you are far from God. Paul affirms this mindset. However, he does not affirm the arrogance that started to take root in Israel toward Gentiles. They missed the mark. For example, if a Gentile ever expressed interest in Israel's God, not only did they have to convert their worldview and, and come to believe the things Israel believes about the world and about God, but they also had to lay aside their own culture and take on all the external distinctions of what it meant to be Jewish. Get circumcised, uh, kosher, be Sabbath, look and act like this. You couldn't be a Gentile, you now have to be Jewish. And it was on this point that Israel missed the mark. It's at this point that Israel didn't quite realize that God had set them apart, yes. To be a blessing for all the nations, yes. To be a light that draws people to God, yes. But it did not mean that every nation had to become Jewish. That was somewhere that Israel in Paul's time had missed the mark. So even though they were near to God, it didn't mean they were right with God. They were still cloaked with their own racism and ethnocentrism, and it was problematic. And so this division between Jews and Gentiles, it had become so deep, so divided, that Paul describes it as a dividing wall of hostility. Verse 14, a dividing wall of hostility. And so as we talk about the way religion can divide humanity up, it's no wonder that some people mistakenly conclude that religion is the source of all division in the world. Religion is the problem. If we just get rid of religion or educate religious people not to be religious, the world would be a better place. If we could do away with religion and unite around reason and logic, then the world would be a better place. But what this perspective fails to see is that it's still dividing the world into us and them. And it's actually increasing the hostility because over the past 50 to 60 years, religion is not on the decline, even though it may be in Western culture, it is actually on the rise globally. And so you're setting yourself against the majority of the world and saying you need to become like us and you need to lay aside what makes you, you. And so to blame religion actually deepens the divide and increases the hostility. But perhaps what's more pertinent to us in this room is the, the vision of tolerance. That tolerance is how the world will be united. That we must uh, learn about other cultures and accept other people on the basis of exactly who they are and for what they stand, and that we must live to fully embrace people and walk with people, no matter what. And although the movement of tolerance is uh, aspiring after a form of, of unity and humanity, it still falls into an us versus them mentality. This is what the philosopher Karl Popper calls the paradox of tolerance. Popper advocated for tolerance, but he says this, we should therefore claim in the name of tolerance the right not to tolerate the intolerant. 
It's a contradiction, isn't it? In the name of tolerance, we may have the right not to tolerate the intolerant. You see, the vision of tolerance still depends upon dividing the world into us and them, those of us who are tolerant and those who do not align with our own ethos and ideology and values. And so tolerance has its limits. It can't heal the division. And it is fundamentally divisive, at least its extreme forms. If you look around the world today and if you see how tolerance has become a political ideology and platform, Brexit and the United States are the equal and extreme opposite reaction to that right now. Because in its worst forms, tolerance is enforced through name-calling and shame and ridicule. It divides us and them. Increases the hostility. And we're seeing these extreme reactions to that. And so tolerance isn't able to heal the hostility and the division. Now, I want to be clear, just so I don't get any angry emails. <laughs> My email address is Preston at St. Peter's Fireside. <laughs> Fighting for equality, learning to respect differences, seeking to build bridges, creating space for forgiveness and reconciliation over past wrongs in history and present wrongs in reality are good initiatives for the common good. I'm not saying all these things are bad. I'm simply saying they're incapable of healing the deeper problem of division in the human spirit. They're not able to heal the way that our psyche is prone to viewing the world as us and them. The way in which we build up these walls of hostility and start to think consciously or unconsciously, if you're not with us, you're against this, against us. And this afflicted Jesus' own apostles. You see in the Gospels a story of some random person healing and casting out demons in Jesus' names. And the apostles go to Jesus, should we stop them, Lord? They're not with us. And Jesus says, whoever's not against us is for us. Totally different mindset from Christ. You see, the problem of division is, is fundamentally spiritual. And it affects every single human being. We have to grasp this. The, the problem of division between humanity, the way we divide up the world into us and them and become racist toward different ethnicities, all of this division is a fundamental spiritual problem. As Paul wrote at the beginning of this letter, you're dead. That's the problem. You're dead in sin and transgression and you're alienated from God. See, God made us as image bearers. You have to think of it kind of like an L. When you're in a right relationship with God, you then reflect him into the world, his love and his grace and his truth and his, his patience and, and all of these positive characteristics of humanity are supposed to be this reflection of God. But when that relationship is severed, you don't stop reflecting. You just now reflect brokenness. You reflect the alienation. You reflect the separation. You reflect the distance. And so all of this division, all of this racism, all the hurt of the world is supposed to signify this fundamental problem with every single human. We're broken and we're separated from God and we need help and we need it fast. And so you see, no amount of human vision can overcome that. Atheism, humanism, religion, they're incapable of fixing this deeper problem, this origin of all our division. So then how is it healed? That's the second point. How is it healed? If division is going to be overcome, if this dividing wall of hostility is going to be torn down, it only happens through reconciliation. 
After the 1994 genocide that left nearly a million um, Tutsis and moderate Hutus murdered, Rwanda and the world were devastated, shocked. How could this happen again? And starting in 2003, the Rwandan government, together with countless religious organizations and communities and nonprofits, began knitting back this country of nine million citizens after nearly one in eight people were slaughtered. One in eight. How can a nation like that become one again? How can Tutsis and Hutus live in villages together and do life together day after day in the aftermath of one in eight people being murdered simply because of their ethnicity or their defense of that ethnicity? For some, the damage and the pain is too much to forgive, and we could understand that. I read an interview recently uh, where a journalist asked a Tutsi woman if survivors had really forgiven the perpetrators in their midst. And she said, for me, when someone forgives them, they don't really mean it. But they have to say it. There is no other option. It's not that they have to say it. It is the right thing to do. There is no other option than forgiveness. What else could they have done? But you cannot forgive such things. You just try to forget and lead another life. When we think about the worst forms of human division, the worst atrocities, is forgiveness and reconciliation possible? Or do we just have to resign ourselves to say the words of forgiveness but never really mean it, to try to forget the unforgettable and try to live a new light in the aftermath? Now, we can understand why that's hard. I don't even think we can really understand why that's hard. But in Rwanda, there's a few organizations such as AMI that have slowly and patiently been working in communities to rebuild the fabric of society. And what AMI does is they identify perpetrators who are living in predominantly um, Tutsi areas. And they find people who are, are wanting to ask for forgiveness. And they take them through a multi-month training on how to apologize. It takes months to prepare the perpetrators for this apology. And then they go and they apologize to the people that they hurt. And if those people should accept that apology, and many do, beautiful things emerge. Here's just one story. On the left is Muda Huranwa. And this is what he said. He said, I burned her house. I attacked her in order to kill her and her children. But God protected them and they escaped. When I was released from jail, if I saw her, I would run and hide. Then AMI started to provide us with trainings. I decided to ask her for forgiveness, to have good relationships with the person to whom you did evil deeds. We thank God. Muka Nyandwi is pictured on the right. And she says, I used to hate him. I used to hate him. When he came to my house and knelt down before me and asked for forgiveness, I was moved by his sincerity. Now, if I cry for help, he comes to rescue me. When I face any issue, I call on him. That is the power of reconciliation. 
enemies can forgive and reconcile and even become family. And this is the power of any true forgiveness and reconciliation. And there are beautiful stories coming out of Rwanda. And whether the stories are of Christians or non-Christians, any true form of forgiveness and reconciliation serves to amplify what God has done for us in Christ. Reconciliation is how the divide will be healed. Look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 13 through 19. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who's made us both Jew and Gentile one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new humanity in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And Jesus came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Reconciliation is at the heart of everything Jesus Christ accomplished for us in the gospel. One way you could summarize the gospel is this. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. God came into the world in his son to become our peace. That's what Paul says. Jesus Christ is our peace. And he came and he preached peace to those who were far and those who were near. He said every single person needs peace. Every single person needs reconciliation with God the Father. Before we can truly address what divides us, we must look at what's divided us from God. But the reconciliation that Jesus Christ offers is not cheap. Paul says it led to a cross. Paul says it cost him blood. That the wall that divides all of us and that divides us from God, Christ had to bear in his body to break it down. That his body had to be broken. That he had to be torn apart so that the many or that the two could become one. See, that's the message of the gospel. Not just that we're saved, but in our salvation, God is doing something new in our midst. He's creating a new humanity that through his son, all people, Jews and Gentiles, now have access to the Father by the Spirit. Paul puts it this way in Galatians. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no female or male, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You see, at the cross, the ground is level. No one is more undeserving or deserving. We all come to God in desperate need of being made new. And when we come to him, we're made one with every single person who comes to him. And so it, peace and reconciliation, lasting peace and reconciliation that can renew the face of the earth, it's not going to come from any social initiative. It's not going to come from any NGO. It's not going to come from some manifesto. It is going to come through Jesus Christ alone. That is his promise. But the message of the gospel is this. When you've been reconciled to the Father, when Jesus Christ is your peace as image bearers, you will begin to reflect that peace and forgiveness and reconciliation into the world in the relationships around you and in the city in which you live. You see, 
if the gospel does not translate into those sort of actions in your life, it doesn't mean you haven't come to Christ. It just means there is a dimension of Christ that you failed to comprehend. That when you understand that you're reconciled to the Father, you must become reconciled to one another. Christ adds this condition after the Lord's Prayer, doesn't he? How can you pray to be forgiven if you do not forgive others? It's this weird paradox that Christ is telling us, if you don't forgive others, you don't know my forgiveness. It's a tough message. But it's the message of the gospel because when we know Christ's forgiveness, when we know the extent to which Christ went to reconcile us, how could we not forgive the offenses others have committed against us? Because no matter how great and how terrible, they will never compare to what Christ has forgiven for us and what he will do through us by his spirit. You don't have to muster up the forgiveness yourself. His spirit is alive and at work in you. And a new unity is possible. A new unity is possible. Look at what Paul says in verse 19 through 22 to close out his thought in this chapter. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Paul stresses the process of unity. We've been joined together in Christ and this temple is growing. We are uh, being built together into a place where Christ's spirit dwells. And so we've been made new, but we work that out in a process. We're becoming what Christ has made us. It doesn't happen overnight, but it is a work of the spirit of God in us. And this would be mind-blowing for Jews. It meant that they now have to figure out how to live with Gentiles. And you see it all throughout the New Testament. It comes up multiple times. How do Jews and Gentiles share a meal together? But it was just as mind-blowing for Gentiles. They now have to figure out how to live with Jews. And so what Paul's stressing here is that the process of becoming this new humanity, it's worked out. It takes time, but it does happen because the spirit of the living God is alive and at work in us, making something new, bringing us together, making us one where there was once division. But you can't resolve this overnight. If you were a Jew and you had racist attitude toward Gentiles, if you saw Gentiles as dogs, as unclean, as less than human, and now they're sitting at the table with you and they don't keep kosher, but they're saved by the same Lord Jesus Christ. And they have equal access to God the Father, not based off of works of the law, but simply because of faith. It takes time, doesn't it? You have to sit and listen to their experience. You have to hear of the saving work of God in their midst. You have to learn how to respect one another's differences, how to explain to them why keeping kosher is still important to you, even if they don't keep it. You have to learn how to do life together and it's going to take time and it's going to happen by listening and repenting and by loving one another and helping one another figure out how our differences don't have to divide, but how our differences can uniquely bear God's image in our midst. But it's the same for the Gentiles. The Jews were often seen as this weird sect that withdrew from culture and always seemed to cause problems. And now you're going into the homes of these agitators in Rome and it's dangerous and you're wondering, can I really be in relationship with these people? And the same thing applies. You have to listen to their experience. 
You have to listen to their history. You have to get to know their story and hear how the Lord Jesus Christ brought them into salvation. You have to repent of the ways in which you've had racist attitudes towards them. And together you can learn to live out and walk out your faith. You see, the process of becoming one, it doesn't happen overnight, but it does happen. That's the promise of the gospel, that we are being built into a dwelling place for God where the two or the many are becoming one in Christ. And so what does this process look like for us at St. Peter's Fireside? What does unity look like for us? First off, every single one of us are called to the good work of belonging to a church. I know that sounds really mundane, so hear me out. You're never just saved into a personal relationship with Christ. You are saved into Christ. You're saved into his body, the church. You have to work out your salvation with this motley crew around you. That is how God has ordained it. These are your people. Paul has used the example of Jews and Gentiles. To my knowledge, most of us are Gentiles. But we could easily change the category. St. Peter's, liberal and conservative citizen or immigrant, or however you want to categorize the world. We all have to learn now how to live together in such a way that our divisions do not divide. Yes, we want to pursue truth. We don't want to compromise truth and how God has revealed himself, but there will be distinctions in us that are not always matters of truth. They're matters of plurality or diversity. And God wants to shine through us and reflect through us in the beautiful mosaic of humanity that he's created. And so what does this mean? It means this. If you can't be reconciled to someone that's like sitting over there who voted for someone different than you, then we have no hope of bringing this message of reconciliation to the world around us. Like if you can't be patient towards Christians who are maybe more immature than you, and let's not talk about how arrogant it is to think you're more mature, but let's just say you can't show patience. Like you're, you're fed up because people don't seem to carry the same passion of you, and so you divide rather than press in. How can you expect to go out into a world that does not believe any of the same things of you and be patient and press in to the slow work of reconciliation? So if we can't be reconciled in here, if we can't press into conflict here as an opportunity for the gospel, there is no way we're going to go into the wider world and address issues of race and ethnicity in any meaningful way. We have to understand, conflict is a gift of the gospel. Some of us are conflict avoided. Conflict happens and you are out of there. Or you shut down or you just say it's okay. But if you understand what Christ did on the cross, he came into the world and faced the ultimate conflict. Our division between us and God, the power of sin, the power of death, the power of Satan, he faced that conflict and brought resolution. And one of the outworkings of the gospel in this place is that we press into conflict. It means that we start to forgive people who hurt us. And if someone asks your forgiveness, can I just give a piece of advice? Please don't say it's okay had to teach our girls this. If you forgive them, say, I forgive you. There is more power in the words, I forgive you, than it's okay. But we have to press into conflict as a church. It's not optional. 
You have to learn to respect, not just respect, love the person who voted differently than you, who holds different political persuasions than you, who doesn't see the world exactly the way you see it, but sees Christ and loves him. And so it starts here. So here's my very, very simple suggestion, my piece of advice to all of us. Stop spending all of your time with people you prefer. Week after week, I have the vantage point of standing here and I know who you're going to sit beside. And it's not a bad thing. I get it. But is there room, is there any capacity in your life to meet someone and spend time with someone who's different than you? And so that's my encouragement to you. In this place, reach out to someone you wouldn't normally reach out to. Now, I know that's immediately awkward because if you do that, they're going to be like, well, Alistair told you to talk to me and now I don't know how to, <laughs> to respond. But can we be gracious to one another in that? In saying that, in this culture, we're really weird about this stuff and we don't know how to address it. And so we just type a bunch of stuff in a survey and hope our pastors will fix it. <laughs> Can we acknowledge this is really hard and that it takes some courage on both parties to acknowledge that there's differences and that we'd like to press into that and we'd like to learn from one another and we'd like to see how these differences might be opportunities for Christ to shine uniquely through us. Because that's God's vision. You see, I hate to break it to you. This white Anglican, predominantly white Anglican church is not God's vision for the world. If you look around the world at God's church, it's every nation, it's every ethnicity, it's this plurality of human creativity and culture and that God comes and redeems the best parts of culture. God's vision is not a homogenous church that looks and talks the same. His vision is humanity redeemed, expressing its amazing diversity as a reflection of the God in whose image we're made. And so we get tastes of that here. As we look to the global church, we want to see more of that in our local expression. We can't manufacture it. We can't force it. But if we press in to our differences, if we learn what makes each other unique and we come to respect that, it will change the way you live out your faith in the world around you. It will. Finally, some of us, not all of us, some of us are called to the work of engaging in racial and ethnic reconciliation in the world around us. Now, when I say some of us, I don't mean all of us are excused. That's not what I'm saying. But some of us are so uniquely gifted. Some of our passions align with this in such a way. Some of us are uniquely called to go out into the world as ambassadors of Christ for reconciliation. In some forms, that's preaching the gospel. That's what Paul talks about his own ministry. I go out into the world and I preach the gospel as an opportunity for reconciliation. But for others, that ministry of reconciliation might be engaging with other organizations in the pursuit of ethnic and racial reconciliation. And that is a good work for the common good. Some of you are called to do that. And my encouragement to you is to do that. If that's your gifting, if that's your passion, if that's where the Lord is leading you to be engaged in the world, to do that. And to invite people to support you in a variety of ways, but to also be understanding that this is not every single person's calling. Every single person is called to be, um, I don't want to say educated, to become increasingly aware 
of how we're prone to division and how we need to learn from differences. We, we all want to be repenting of racist, racist attitudes and we all want to be learning how to live in harmony in our culture around us. So none of us are excused from that, but not all of us are called to the same intensity and passion and time devoted to this specific area. And so can you invite prayer? Can you invite support? Can you invite understanding and not stand above people and say, why aren't you doing this? Because we're all called to different things. So this is an important work. This is an essential work, but it is not the only work. And I want to say that as a gentle correction because sometimes it comes across that way. And what it ends up doing is dividing rather than uniting. How can we work for this together, understanding that each of us might feel a different intensity of calling to this matter and this issue? Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God has created a new humanity. And you can have that. You can be made one with God through Christ and the reconciliation he's accomplished on the cross. But if you accept that gift, he wants to make you a new humanity with the people in this room. It's not always easy. We're going to bumble it from time to time. And that is okay because there's enough grace. There's grace upon grace. And I pray and I hope that as we learn how to forgive and reconcile in this place, we might become agents of reconciliation in the world around us. That we might demonstrate the power of forgiveness and reconciliation in the stories we see in Rwanda. That we might have those same stories here in, in all the different issues that plague our own city. But it's only possible because of the power of the cross. Jesus Christ came into the world to preach peace. But his message was himself. He's our peace. And so in the world, we can't always... Bring that message right away. But when there's opportunities, we hope that the reconciliation we fight for becomes a sign that points to a bigger reality, a bigger and beautiful reality that God is desperate to reconcile the world to himself and has established peace and he's offering it to you. Let's pray. Father, take two, I still feel this is just such an inadequate sermon for the, the topic it addresses. Um, and Lord, that's because no sermon can fix these things. But you can. So we call on your name, the Father of all nations, to heal this broken humanity, Lord. to heal us of the ways we divide, the ways we separate ourselves, the ways we murder and kill. Lord, please examine our hearts and help us to see the ways in which we've still given ourselves to dividing the world into us and them, even in this room. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, we might become one. And Lord, that feels like a big prayer. But I know you can do it. Because you've broken down this dividing wall of hostility. You've overcome it. And when we are united in you, all things are possible. So Jesus, please heal us of the things that divide. Please unite us as a church. And please send us out into the world as ambassadors of reconciliation rooted in the hope that the only power to save is the message of the gospel. So Lord, help us to see the good work you've prepared for us, the good work of pursuing forgiveness and reconciliation in your church, and the good work 
of becoming ambassadors of forgiveness and reconciliation in the world around us. It's in your name we pray. Amen.